I'm reading from John 20. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Arabic, A rabbi, which means teacher. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger into the, so- the, nail, the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask that you send your spirit so we see Jesus for who he is and what he has done clearly. And please work into our hearts and minds the reality of your word. Amen. I know we are in Lent and I am reading a passage about the resurrection. I get that, but go with me. I'm not celebrating the glory of the resurrection, but there's something in this text that I think is helpful for us in this time of Lent, where we're anticipating what's to come, but we're looking at the reality of our condition. And Thomas, the doubter, is a great place for us to focus our attention on. Before we look at the passage, to to look at the movement in the text, I want to tell you about a famous book, which I'm sure many of you have already heard about. It's called The Five Love Languages. Show of hands if you've heard of this book. All right, half of you, that's expected. The rest of you will get this after I describe it to you. It's very helpful. The whole idea about the book is that people have different love languages. The five options that they give are words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch, acts of service, and giving gifts or receiving gifts. The basic gist of the book is that if you want to show love to someone, you need to figure out not how you like to express love, but how they receive and hear expressions of love the best. This is helpful when you're thinking about a relationship, when you have the boyfriend who loves uh, acts of service. He likes changing oil. He likes all that kind of stuff for the girlfriend. But she wants quality time. Well, he's out doing what he thinks is love, but what she sees as love is different. So that the whole idea is to match up one's way of showing love that accommodates the way that that other person receives love. The whole idea is that if you love someone, love accommodates. 
Love isn't about me showing how loving I am to my wife, but is to see how does she understand love and accommodate to her so she can hear and see love from me. So they can get it. That's what it does. Love goes out of the way to make sure that the other gets it. Now, this is not only helpful for relationships and marriage and with children and dating, but I think that this is a great way to understand how God loves us. His accommodating love is exactly what we see happening in our passage in John 20. Jesus appears three times. To Mary, to the disciples, and to Thomas. Everyone focuses the attention on Thomas because it's such a dramatic story. But if we miss out on the other two, we're missing the whole point of John telling this story. Each person in the group has a different encounter with Jesus. But what we see is that they got exactly what they needed. They got God's accommodated love in order to believe. And this is the beautiful truth that is pictured. That when they lack faith, Jesus was faithful by accommodating to their need and to their weakness. You see, Mary, she was at the tomb weeping. And she only needed to hear Jesus call out her name. She's crying at the tomb and sees Jesus. It says she turned around and saw Jesus. But she only believed after Jesus calls her name. When Mary lacked faith, Jesus was faithful and accommodated by calling her name. And then the disciples, they're cowering far behind, behind locked doors. And Jesus arrives declaring peace. And he needed to do that because that would have scared them. That would have freaked them out. I mean, they're expecting him to be dead. So Jesus showing up would have caused anxiety. So the first thing out of his mouth is peace be with you. But it was only after he then shows his wounds to them that it says that they were filled with joy at the sight of him. Once they saw the wounds, it certified it was really Jesus. They were good to go. When the disciples lacked faith, Jesus accommodated to them not just words, but then the display of his wounds, which is exactly what they needed. Then there's Thomas. He is hearing the voice and seeing the wounds. He said, that's not enough. I, I know Mary. I know what Mary said. She heard. I know what you all told me. And he's been doing ministry and life with them for a few years. He's not trusting his friends. He says, I need to actually touch. I need to put my fingers. And it has this almost offensive kind of visceral. Like, I want to see it. I want to touch it. I want to put my hand in his side. It, it has a sense of transgression. And then Jesus arrives and accommodates and offers his wounds for the poking of Thomas. And when Thomas lacked faith, Jesus was faithful and accommodated Thomas's need and presented his wounds for the touching. What we see in John 20 is that God accommodates. He knows the love language of all of his followers, and he knows ours. He accommodates to us in our weakness, in our confusion, in our doubt, and in our fear. All things that we see in the followers in this text. And the good news is, he shows up and accommodates to tell us that we are loved to the utmost. That we are not alone. That our sins are forgiven. And that our doubts don't cause him to scurry away in annoyance. I like the idea 
of Jesus accommodating to our special, specific weaknesses and conditions. He does that so we can trust him. And that's the heart of Christianity. He accommodates to us in his incarnation, where he was tempted in every way like we are. But here's the key for me, and this is why I wanted to read a resurrection passage in the middle of Lent. That at the moment of his glory, when he has all right to stand there and say, here I am, come and find me and see me, I'm resurrected in all of his glory. Instead of doing that, he accommodates in his moment of glory to those who have doubts, fears, and questions. And that's what gives us hope. See, he's not doing tough love. Accommodating love is very different from tough love. He's not wanting them to learn lessons. His love was unconditional and patiently pursued them. Francis Thompson, a man who would not be considered an example by most of us. As a matter of fact, we'd look at him as a failure. He was an opium addict and survived as an invalid for many years and then finally died of tuberculosis. But he's famous for a beautiful poem, The Hound of Heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the many years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears I hid from him. He sets up his poem in the context of a life spent running from God. And the poem pictures God as an old bloodhound sniffing out the scent and always in the distance and occasionally lets out a howl just to remind us that he's on our trail. And as the poem go on, Thompson says that he fled, quote, across the margins of the world. But the refrain comes back. Still with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, came on the following feet in a voice above the beat. See, God tracked him down. He tracked him down where he was hiding. And once God was on the trail, and he's on our trail, he sets his heart with relentless zeal and undivided passion in pursuit of us. And that's what led him to the cross. The accommodating love of John 20 is the accommodating love that we need in the middle of our hiding. When we hide, he searches. When we run, he pursues. When we are indifferent, he waits. When we give ourselves to other love, he takes us back without one question. And when we are lonely, he calls our name. Thomas learned about the hound of heaven who accommodated his needy requests, and we can learn from him. You see, Thomas got a bum rap for... He ends up being the punching bag for the faith. Thomas is jeered at as if he was overly needy and did something wrong by being honest with what he actually needed to believe. And far from being the punching bag, especially in Lent, when we're doing what happens in Lent, I believe Thomas can be our patron saint. He wasn't the gloomy, skeptical loner who missed out. Here's what one author writes about Thomas. Thomas's personality was very likely his promise, his problem. A gloomy, pessimistic person frequently struggles to make the positive affirmations at the heart of faith. 
Thomas cut himself off from the community of disciples and tried to work out his problems on his own. For whatever reasons, he missed the coming of the Lord and was penalized for his absence by a week of agonizing struggle. Thomas missed out. That's how we so often feel with our doubts. If that's applied to us, we messed it all up, we were needy, we had a few questions, and now we're missing out on grace because we dare to have honesty about the human condition. Thomas watched the Messiah that he had given his life to get killed. And when the Romans nailed someone to the cross, they finished the job. He knew Jesus was dead. And first, the women and the rest of the others are saying Jesus is alive. But the evidence was clear. He had died. He wasn't resuscitating. They didn't switch out bodies. Jesus was dead, and he was pronounced dead. And the certificate had been signed by rolling the stone over the tomb with the seal on it. It was obvious that the disciples were victims of some type of group hysteria, and their grief had driven them to the delusion that Jesus was still alive. Far from being the punching bag, we should have pity for Thomas. His world crashed in around him when Jesus was killed. He wasn't expecting a Messiah to get killed. He had just, in his mind, wasted years of his life following Jesus, who did some magic tricks and said really nice but kind of weird things. He was despondent. And he was confused. And now his friends are saying things that are ridiculous and to him, unbelievable. Under those circumstances, we would also have some questions and doubts. In the middle of our circumstances now, regardless of how long you've been in the faith, you have some doubts that creep in. But we should be unafraid to doubt and deal with these. There's no believing without some doubting. And believing is all the more robust after going through and experience the doubts. Khalil Gibran puts it beautifully. Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. So if doubts are no longer the opposite of faith. Perhaps we can be honest with them the way that Thomas was. What are your doubts? What are some of the fantastic claims that you have heard that you might doubt? And as you may guess, most preachers give you texts and some of the things that they are in the middle of. So this is not just me pontificating about doubts, but after you tell people in the middle of suffering and death some amazing things about the resurrection in the afterlife, in hope, it can arouse some questions. And so these are some of the questions that I wrestle with with my own sin. Some of the questions I wrestle with with regard to the hope that I am supposed to be a herald for to those who are suffering and doubting with sin or the suffering that's been done to them. Maybe you think that your struggles are darker and deeper than anyone else knows. You know, is God really not angry with you? Even if you think you perpetually let him down. Or perhaps... Does God really love me when I don't deserve it? Does he realize how unfaithful I am? Or 
If God loves me so much, why am I still in bondage to this sin? Why was that suffering allowed to happen? Why am I jobless? Why am I futureless? Why am I loveless? Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. Maybe you doubt that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Maybe you doubt that God loves you unconditionally. That God will show up in your weakness to be strong. Perhaps you doubt that there is no condemnation for you in Christ. Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. And maybe you doubt that God doesn't hold you accountable for your sins because he held his son accountable on your behalf. That God sees you as perfect and pure, even though you're not. Because you're declared and called what Jesus was. God responds to your doubts. You might doubt the objective facts of the Christian faith. You might doubt the resurrection. You might doubt the authority of Scripture. Or perhaps you you are doubting more of the interaction of the reality of the work of Christ for you, the unconditional love of God, that your sins are forgiven, that you're really new, and that you do have hope. Whatever the doubt is, we can learn from Thomas with seeing Jesus' accommodating love. He shows us the wounds. And I'm not sure what showing us the wounds means for you. Sometimes he does that through sermons, through conversations with friends, through hymns, through crying out to God in despair. However he does it, you're wired differently and he knows how to accommodate to you. I want to place you as best I can at the accommodating mercy of God and let him do what he needs to do for his namesake. I can't deliver on the promise, but I can hopefully bring you as close to the accommodating mercy and see how he might engage your doubts and questions. And the wounds that he showed to Thomas weren't nice accessories to Thomas's efforts or you know, some type of idea of him having to conjure faith. The wounds were the point. The wounds are for us. They're God's solidarity with us in the messiness of life and death. The wounds show that he overcame death and he's making all things new. If he overcame death and he is making all creation, new heavens and new earth new, he can handle our doubts and questions. The wounds show us that he knows the pain and loneliness and he knows what it feels like to feel forsaken by God. And he didn't die a shameful death just to bless shame. He bore the whole weight of shame and guilt to neutralize them. If he'd stayed dead, the shame and cost would have amounted to a very touching example of human resignation to shame and guilt. But he died, and he rose again, and he has the wounds to prove it. And as soon as Jesus offers the wounds to Thomas, Thomas didn't even need to touch them. It was the offer. It was the kindness and the mercy and the grace of offering the wounds Before Thomas even declared it, remember Thomas said what he needed to his disciple friends. He didn't tell Jesus what he needed. He just declared to them. And so instead of Jesus sitting back and going, okay, let me set up this punchline for you. And then Thomas says, I need to touch them. And then Jesus offers. No, he didn't do that. Jesus arrives with his gift and says, hey, Thomas, I know what you need. 
Here, have at it. And Thomas didn't even do that. It was the gentle, kind offer from Christ that caused Thomas to cry out, My Lord and my God, a simple and clear declaration of faith. And that is the key to our relating to God. We are at His accommodating mercy. So if you feel like a second-rate believer or outside the scope of God's mercy and forgiveness, or if you are under the burden of doubts, whatever they may be, please remember Jesus' accommodating love to Thomas because that that is still His disposition to you and to me. Thomas sat there in his doubt. Thomas was a bundle of need. He could not make himself believe. He couldn't just conjure faith. And it was at the very point of his deepest weakness, his biggest doubts, and his most difficult questions that Jesus arrives and said, touch them. So remember that while we may be worried about grace being too easy, Jesus apparently was not worried in the slightest. He wasn't afraid to accommodate to Thomas in his dark doubts with his wounds. And that's why in Lent we're invited to pray the wonderful sentence from Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He cares about your doubts and questions more than you do. And that is a prayer that he is eager to accommodate, listen to, and answer. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Let us pray. Merciful and patient hound of heaven, is in the struggles of our doubting that we are driven to discover that you have bore our pain and that you have the wounds to prove it. Because of your pursuit of us, we can proclaim, my Lord and my God. May the faith realized in the struggle of doubts ever light our way. Amen.